If you haven't already done so, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Now, if you were in Bible study this morning, we talked about verses 1 through 11. And by the way, if you're not in a Bible study group, I would highly commend it. Um, this is a great time to, to, to think about being a part of a Bible study group because when I'm working with a book like First and Second Peter, there are little books we really can get in and analyze and talk and, and see what is going on uh, in the book. And then we come in here and I take smaller portions and just explode them out for us to look at on a, on a, on a much more um, microscopic scale as we look at them. But this morning we were in verses 1 through 11, and really 7 through 11 were just kind of mentioned almost in passing, and that was a shame, I think. I never try to criticize LifeWay's material, but I wish they had um, spent a little more time. But it gives me the opportunity to take the, the little bit that we talked about in Bible study this morning and expand it out as we talk about what it means to live in the light of Christ in today's world. Sharon's mom and dad have been with us now a little over four years up here. Uh, they moved from Florida to live with us, and um, for a while they had an apartment of their own, and that became untenable, and then they moved in with us down on 4th Street, and now we live up north of town. Um, and if there's anything that I have learned from being around my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, but especially my mother-in-law, it is what it means to be diagnosed with a terminal diagnosis. The day that the doctor looked at my wife, and if you think Dr. Kirk never sheds a tear, I got news for you, he did that day, looked at my wife and said, Sharon, you have to understand, your mother will never get any better, and eventually she will die. At that moment, her death was imminent. Now, that's been four years. She may be with us four more years. But the minute that she received a prognosis of imminent death, the clock began to tick. The only problem is we can't see the face of the clock, so we don't know how, many, how much longer there is on it. But it's counting down. And so every day, now we don't dwell on that, we don't, we don't mourn that every day, but we also are reminded each day that we need to make sure that by the time we go to bed or put her to bed that evening, we've done everything we could to make that day a good day for her because we don't know how many more we'll have left. There's something about the imminent prognosis of death that makes you think about how you live each day. And the reason I tell you that is because the passage that we have before us today from 1 Peter begins with eight words that most of us in these pews will be tempted at least to construe in one of two ways, both of which are dangerously wrong. Peter begins in verse 7 by saying this, Now the end of all things is near. And we tend to do one or two things with those eight words. We tend to either say, well, was he ever a fool? That was 2,000 years ago when things are still clicking along just like nothing has changed. Or we say, oh, he was speaking metaphorically. He was talking about death. So in each of our lives, Christ's presence is imminent in our lives because we're going to die and see him. But beloved, neither one of those things is what Peter is talking about. He is talking about something that I want you to understand from the example I just gave you about my mother-in-law. Peter himself, I mean, you, again, I always do this with you. You've got to remember, this letter was written by a real person in real time to real people. 
Just because it's an ancient letter does not mean it's any less real. Peter, the Peter, the big fisherman, the reason I have a boat on the platform to remind us of who Peter was, Peter stood on that mountain. He watched Jesus literally go up, rise off the ground, ascend into heaven until he was hidden by the clouds. And then two angels said, this same Jesus whom you have seen go into heaven will surely in like manner return in the same way that he was taken up into heaven. At that moment, the return of Christ became imminent. At that moment, at any second, Christ could return. And it is just as imminent today as it was on that day. And if the Lord decides to tarry another thousand years, it will still be imminent. Steve Wright reminded me, pointed at you, Steve Wright reminded me this morning about the example I used a few months ago about driving along the edge of a cliff. At any moment, just one little turn, and we're over the cliff and into eternity. But we don't know when that point is going to happen. But we have to understand that in Peter's mind, Christ's return, the end of the life as we know it, is always imminent. Couple that with the fact that just above, just above verse 7, he's talking in verse 6 about well, actually, verse 5, it says, they will give an account. These are the people who have been slandering the believers, persecuting them because of their faith, ridiculing them because they don't go along with them and their flood of debauchery and all that stuff. And he said, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, I take that to mean spiritually. If it means physically, it doesn't change the truth. Christ will judge every one of us. Now, not in the same way. Those who are lost will be judged because of their rejection of Christ and sent into an eternity without Him. Those of us who are believers, who have surrendered our lives to Christ, who have accepted what Jesus did for us on the cross, we too will be judged for how we lived our lives from the moment that we surrendered our lives to Christ until the day that we met Him in judgment. So Peter is reminding these little pockets of believers scattered all over Asia Minor, that 500-mile stretch as I said to my Bible study group this morning, 500 miles to us today is not all that far. But in a walking culture, it was an eternity. There were people who lived in Asia Minor that never saw the Aegean Sea, never dreamed. They didn't see the Mediterranean Sea unless they lived close to it. But across that 500 miles, those little pockets of believers in this vastly pagan world, he says, now, remember, the end of all things is imminent. So, I have four things I want you to do, and I want you to look at those four things. Four things, Peter says, to them and through them to us, I want you to do. Because tonight, we could be taken into judgment before Christ. Before you get home today, you know me, I kind of, every now and then I'm a little bit melodramatic. I, I know that surprises you. Brian flatly learned today to never sit to my left at the, around the Sunday school table, because I always put my hand on the person that's on the left. And we were talking about how we live our lives. We go home the same way we've gone home every day. Same trip. Don't have to worry about braking. We know where the curves are, know how fast to go, how slow to go. Except we didn't realize that an hour before we went down that road, a pickup truck with a load of sand went by and hit a bump and or swerved to miss a dog. And a little bit of sand slipped out of the back of that truck. And now there's about a quarter inch of sand across just around that curve right there where Cruz Kennel is. And you go around there flying like you always do, right boarding on 55 miles per hour. Even though it says 50 miles per hour through this curve, and you are swept into eternity. You say, well, I thought you said it wasn't about death. It's not. 
solely about death. But the way that the judgment comes may be different for different ones of us. So Peter says, I have four things I want you to understand, I want you to do. Number one, therefore, he says, be serious and disciplined in your lives. Be serious and disciplined. Now, understand the meaning of those two words. Serious and disciplined. They're, they're not exactly synonyms. Uh, for any of you that are English scholars, they're called a hendiadis. A hendiadis are two words or a phrase that sums up a big thing. Morning, noon, and night. Lock, stock, and barrel. Words that taken together mean something different. Okay? Morning and evening. Alpha and omega. Disciplined and serious. Is a state of mind that Peter says we have to have knowing, believing, understanding that the judgment of Christ on how we live our lives is imminent. It could be right around our next breath, our next heartbeat. I can guarantee you Jerry Dillon thought that just a week ago. But what does that mean? Be serious. Be disciplined. Well, he means you need to be thinking seriously about how you are living your life. You can't go, well, I, you know, I need to really do more, spend more time in my Bible. I think next year I want to start a new plan. Start today. You may not have next year. You know, I probably need to talk to my neighbors sometime about my love for them and how I'd love to see them come to Christ. Don't wait till you're in a better mood. You'll never be in a better mood. You need to be involved. Get there. Do that. Be serious. Be disciplined in your life. Don't just think, oh, well, we've always got today, tomorrow. You know, we're fine. We've got plenty of time. We'll just go and have fun for now. We can always get serious about God later on. There are probably a few of you in this room. I don't know who you are. I wouldn't know who you are. But there may be a few of you in this room who are retired. And when you were younger, you thought to yourself, you know what? I got kids. I got the job. I got my spouse's job. We got the mortgage payment. I, can't, I just can't give God a lot of time now. I'll give him time when I retire. And now you're retired. You're not giving me more than you did before. Now, again, I don't know who you are. I'm not saying I'm pointing out individuals, but, but you realize the fact. Now you look at it and say, boy, I wish I had done it then. I would have been in the habit of it. Why don't we teach our children to tithe when they only make $120 a week or $120 a month <laughs> in one of my boys' cases? Because if you learn to do it now, you'll always do it. Peter says you need to be disciplined and serious in your life. But what's kicker of this thing is why should they be serious and disciplined? Because there's a great battle out there against the enemy? Because you need to stand up against the forces of evil? Because you need to be involved in this cosmic warfare? What does Peter say? You need to be serious and disciplined for prayer. Prayer? I ain't got time for prayer. I got a battle to fight. I ain't got time to sit around and pray. I got things I got to get done. Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. The first thing when you realize the fact that Christ's return, that the end of all things is imminent at any moment it can end, the first thing you need to do is you need to get serious about your prayer life. Get serious about how you pray. You say, well, what's the opposite to that? What's the other option? The other option is you pray for whatever mood you're in at the time. Now, none of y'all ever do that. But I never now and then will do that. Every now and then I will get in a mood and I will pray out of my mood. Okay? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Can I have a witness? Okay. Oh, Lord, whatever you do, don't let that person be president. Oh, Lord, please, spare us from this. Oh, Lord, please. We pray out of our emotions. Not that those things aren't important, but we pray out of the mood that we're in at the time, and we pray undisciplined prayers. Instead of saying, Lord, 
My number one prayer for November the 8th is that when the sun comes up on November the 9th, I will be a testimony to the power of the gospel over whatever happens in this country. That is my prayer, that we will live and we will stand. And Christine Miller, what she said last night will be absolutely true. That is all of our lost friends and neighbors and coworkers will look to us for answers for what happens in our world. Now that is a disciplined prayer because that it doesn't matter who wins then. What matters is who will we be? How will we respond? Peter says, listen, the end of all things is near. So you need to be disciplined and serious in your prayer life. Number two, you also need to have an intense love or an earnest love for each other since love covers a multitude of sins. Sincere, earnest, intense uh, love for each other. Now, let's put this in its historical context. Remember, we're talking about little pockets of believers in this vast section of Asia. And all they had to depend on was each other. <laughs> they, they could not be loving to each other. I mean, there might only be a dozen of them in a city of 30 or 40,000. If they got crossways with each other, guess what? The gospel witness was destroyed in that place. They had to make sure that they were in love with each other and that that love was intense and earnest. Now, I was telling my class this morning that of all the dictionary apps that you can buy for your phone or get for your phone, the one I like the best is dictionary.com because dictionary.com has got what they call a learner's tab. This is written about on a junior high level so that a junior high student who doesn't really understand the formal definition of a word can get an example. I looked up the word earnest, E-A-R-N-E-S-T, which is actually the best translation of the word in the Greek for what the Holman has is intense. Intense is fine, but earnest really is the better word. Listen to how it is defined in the learner's dictionary, okay? Hang on a minute, let me get my, line, my thing back on here so I can get it. One moment, please. There we go. Earnest people. This is, this is the, the learner's dictionary on dictionary.com. Earnest people are very serious and sincere in what they say or do because they think that their actions and beliefs are important. They are serious and sincere in what they do because they believe, they think in their heart that the actions and beliefs that they hold are important. That's earnest love, a love that is serious, a love that is sincere because we believe that our actions and our beliefs are important. And guess what? They are. It is vital that within the church family, we have this earnest, intense, sincere, serious love for one another. Why? Because, according to Proverbs chapter 10, love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, does that mean that, that God forgives sins if we love? No, it's not talking about that. That's only done through the blood of Jesus Christ. Is it talking about that we are sinless if we love? No, it doesn't mean that either. What it means is it's so much easier to deal with the little ways that we get crossways of each other when the foundation of our relationship is built on love. I told you many times, I worked with two different people groups when we were in western Tanzania, the Waha and the Wabembe. The Waha were such wonderful. They were pastoralists. They were agriculturalists. Uh, the Wabembe were fishermen, um, and, and fishing is a tough life anywhere in the world, especially if you fish in a more traditional way, which means you're up all night long fishing in the dark. You come home, you try to go to bed. Those of you guys that work third shift know sometimes it's hard to keep a clear mind because you're up all night, and then you're sleeping during the day, and it's kind of crazy. 
And it seemed like no matter what you did with an Mbembe, he would take it the wrong way. I mean, you could give them a new car, and they want to know why it wasn't this kind of car. You gave them this kind of I mean, there's no matter what you did, because there wasn't a foundation of love and trust. Now, the Waha, you could slap them across the mouth. They say, thank you, sir. Can I have another? I mean, they just, because they knew that we, and they thought, they, no, seriously, they thought, you know what? If you did that, I must have needed them. There must have been a bug on my face or something, and that's why you, you hit me there. But it's amazing how you get two different re- responses to two different people based entirely upon what was the foundation of the relationship. And so Peter says, if your relationship is built on a foundation of mutual, earnest, intense, serious, sincere love, because you understand how important it is, then when those things come, because we're always going to be sinners and we're always going to have little squabbles with each other, squabbles with each other, we can cover those other those over. It, it's okay. In the long-term scheme of things, it doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, it was so important to Peter that at the beginning of verse 8, he said, above all, love each other. It is the most important thing that you do. Little body of believers there in Cappadocia. Little body of believers there at First Baptist Church of Waterloo. Above everything else you do, you need to have an intense, earnest love for each other. Does it mean we'll always agree on everything? Of course not. Does it mean we might get crossways? For a little while, but very quickly, hopefully, if our love is intense and earnest, that will go, you know what? Sure, I got my feelings hurt, but you know what? It's really okay. We got all of eternity. That's what keeps, oh, I haven't told you, but the birthday party's been called off. We will not be going to Florida in November for our grandchildren's birthday. And we're sad. But the thing that we continually remind ourselves is we believe with all of our hearts, as much as we can believe anything about anybody, that our son is a believer. We believe our daughter-in-law is a believer, and our children are still too young. If Christ were to return today, we would have all of eternity to sit with Tim and Bianca and talk with them. We could play and whatever state the girls and TJ will be in eternity, we can play with them and spend time with them. And as much as I would love to be able to see my grandson and spend time with him, I know there will come a day when we will be together forever. To God be the glory. Number three, be hospitable to one another without complaining. <laughs> oh, Peter, be hospitable with each other, period. No, 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 no. Be hospitable with each other without complaining. Now, most of us understand, because we know some stuff from our other Bible stories, Bible teaching, Bible uh, reading, that in Peter's day, in the first century, and actually in several centuries down the road, most travel was done on foot. The inns or taverns or hotels of the time were not clean, nice places to go to. Imagine a room about the size of your Sunday school room back there, where 40 or 50 people would all be sleeping together on the floor, on a dirt floor with straw. And I don't want to be rude, crude, or so unacceptable, but, I, but, about, but about three people down from you is Mr. and Mrs. Jones, who's it's their anniversary, and they decide they're going to celebrate their anniversary while you're laying over here. And over here, there's somebody with a baby who is screaming at the top of their lungs. And right over there on the other side of the room, there's somebody that's getting in a fight or somebody's gotten drunk. That's what the taverns were like, the inns were like in those days, which is why we're thankful to God that Mary did not have the baby Jesus in the inn. The best thing that innkeeper did for her was tell her, we don't have any room I think he did it because he knew she was about to give birth. He said, but there's a beautiful, clean stall back here where you can be by yourself, and it'll be quiet, and you can have your baby back there. Best, I need to preach a sermon on the jolly, blessed innkeeper, okay? So part of this is talking about that. When believers come through your town, when they come through your area, and they're looking for a place to stay, be hospitable, be open and friendly and loving so that they will have a place to stay. 
And don't complain. Don't grumble. I know it's your last loaf of bread, but that's okay. Be kind. It's living out that law of love from the previous verse. But I think it's more than just that. I really honestly do. Because where do these people meet? Did they have the First Baptist Church of Cappadocia where they all met on Sunday mornings? No. They met in each other's homes. They may have met every morning still at that point in each other's homes where they started their work day. And if your home was a little bit bigger than maybe the other person, maybe they opted, opted more often to come to your house. And after a while, it would be easy to start to grumble. It would be easy to start complaining a little bit. Peter says, don't do that. You're all you've got. You're going to be judged before you know it or how you've lived your life. So be hospitable, be open, be loving, be caring. And fourthly, based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. Now, before we go on and look at some of the breakdown of what that says in verse 11, let's just talk about what verse 10 tells us. Number one, your ability to minister, your opportunity to serve has nothing to do with you. It is a gift that has been given to you. Which means, in a way, it does belong to you, because if I give you a gift, I want you to have it, but it's always got the string of, I've got to think about the person that gave it to me. That's why, if I gave you a picture of Elvis on velvet, you're probably not going to sell it in a yard sale if you think I might show up. Hey, isn't this the vase that I gave you for Christmas? Oh, no, no, that's another one that just looks like it. You know? Right? Because there's always that string back to the person that gave you the gift. And that's, and I'm kind of making it funny, but the bottom line is we have all been gifted by God. Every one of us have been gifted. Here Peter is picking up, I don't know if you ever read Paul's letters, if maybe they had just talked, but it's the same theology that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians and other places where he talks about the spiritual gifts. We all have these gifts that we have been given for what purpose? To serve others as good managers, as good stewards of the diverse grace of God. Remember what grace is, right? Undeserved love. None of us deserves the gift we were given. None of us deserves the service or the ministry that we have been gifted with. We were given to it by God to serve each other. And I really, again, I, I'm always picking and choosing with translations. The, the literal is a reflexive. It's not to serve others. It's to serve each other. So I serve you with my gift, you serve me with your gift, we all serve each other. Which brings me, before I get to verse 11, to something that often gets overlooked in this passage. Have you noticed that every one of those four admonitions have to do with life in the church? Stop and think. Peter says, the end of all things is imminent. You will be giving an answer to God, to Christ, for how you lived your life under his lordship with the spiritual gifts you've been given. So pray for each other, love each other, be hospitable to one another, and serve each other with your gifts. Every, not a single thing about their impact on the lost world. Not a single thing about their vertical relationship with God. It's all about live that out. Live out that vertical relationship in the way you treat each other in the church. And that is one small reason why our mission statement as a church is loving God, loving each other, and serving the world. Because when the world sees how we love each other, that will be a clear testimony to the practicality of what we believe. See, if we go out in the world preaching a great doctrine, but we can't stand to be in the same room with each other, the world, you think the world's not going to notice that? Sure they're going to notice that. 
And so we live out this relationship. So Peter says, listen, when you think about the eminence of the return of Christ, the eminence of the judgment of Christ, the eminence of the time you're going to have to give an account for how you lived your life, you need to spend your time being the best part of the church family into which you've been planted that you can be. It doesn't matter whether it's a first century group of 12 people meeting in a home or a 21st century group of 400 people meeting at 320 Covington Drive. Care for each other. He finishes the thought by breaking out in verse 11 two basic character uh, um, um, qualities or areas or categories of spiritual gifts. He doesn't do like Paul and list out a whole bunch of different things. He says there are two kinds. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Now, i got to tell you, when I was studying this, I immediately thought of the two biblical offices in the church because the pastor's primary gift and responsibility is what? Speaking the word and praying for the flock and, as we can, providing pastoral care and love to the congregation. But the primary gift that the pastors have is speaking. The primary responsibility of the deacons is serving. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that's what Peter meant, but that was the first thing that came into my mind, speaking and serving, speaking and serving. Because he says each of you has been given a gift. You've either given, been given a speaking gift or you've been giving, given a serving gift. He says if you're speaking, you need to remember that when you speak under the inspiration of and the leadership of God's Holy Spirit in your life. Now, it's not holy writ, but you need to speak as if your very words were God's words. And i got to tell you, for the guy sitting on, standing on this side of this piece of furniture, that's terrifying. Because it would be so easy for me to slide my thoughts, my opinions, my biases. And I know I do. I, I don't mean to. I don't use this pulpit as a, as, a, as a political base for me to throw out my agendas. I try to make sure we're always hearing God's word and what he has to say. But to say, you need to realize when you speak, you are accountable for whether the word is God's word. But you know what it is for you Sunday school teachers too. You children's workers, children's church leaders, team kid workers, sharing the gospel with a neighbor or a friend. And if you're serving, your service comes out of the strength that God provides. Not in your own strength. If all you do is what you have the strength to do, guess what? It's not going to mean anything to anybody. But when they see you serving in a way that goes well beyond your normal ability, well beyond your personality, well beyond your talents, well beyond your nature, that is going to speak volumes. And that's really true of all of these things. The praying, the loving, the hospitality. And the, and the gifting, all comes around to doing it through the strength that only God can give. To what end? So the church will grow and we'll have a thousand people in worship? God were to will it, sure. To plant 50 new churches? Sure, if that's what God wants. But what it is in the end of verse 11 is so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. The reason that we serve and speak and show hospitality and love and pray is so that God can get the glory. Isn't that a little bit selfish on his part, don't you think? I mean, can't we at least get a little bit of glory out of this? I mean, can't we just get a little bit of a kudo, a little pat on the back? Listen, there is nothing more loving that God can do than to glorify himself through us. Why? Because how do people come to salvation? Everyone 
that calls on what? The name of the Lord shall be saved. How will they know his name if they do not see him through us? Now, that's not the end of the gospel, just seeing it in our lives, but it's the beginning of the gospel. And so as he receives glory in our lives, people are drawn to that. And then either we, or as Brother Denny said so well a few weeks ago, we may, may just be a, li- a lineman on the line, but we're all part of pushing the ball down the field. I may never get to touch the ball. I may just be a left tackle, but my job is to make sure that the guy that does have the ball can get to where he needs to get to. And sometimes our job is to just be there and be an example so that when the Holy Spirit is ready, someone else can come along through the space that we have created in that person's life and be able to share the gospel. Thank you so much for sharing that example. I know you did it over here, but I know you did it over there because my boys were talking about it. Well, you missed out if you didn't get it over here, so now you got it from me. The most loving thing God can do is to enable us to do the work so that he then can receive the glory. So far, almost eight years into serving you as your pastor, I have yet to have a Sunday morning that my stomach was not in knots before I came. Not because I don't trust God, but because I'm just afraid for myself that I will get in the way. And I cry out to God, God, I cannot do this. He said, I know you can't. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal. I'll give you the ability and you give me the glory. Now, that's a deal I can take. I get the help, he gets the glory. I like that. I get the help, he gets the glory. So to God be the glory for whatever you hear by his spirit through this flawed vessel this morning. And he finishes with that wonderful doxology. To him, Christ, belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, The time of all things is imminent. The end of all things is imminent. It is always a hairbreadth away from where we are right now. We don't know when the clock will finally tick down to zero and the father will say to the son, that's it, go get my children, it's done. But it could be today. It is always imminent. There's a little part of me, and I don't mean to sound morose or or negative or Anything like that. But there's always a little part of me. Whenever we leave here and go home for lunch, to find Dad and a car from Kornheim's out in front of the house. But the time has come. And I want to make sure that when I stand there and I look at the remains of my mother-in-law, I'll be able to say, I did everything I could to make sure that her last day was a good one. And so when that time comes and we are brought into Christ's presence, I want us to be able to say, as best we could with God's help to Him be the glory, we have done our best to be faithful in our prayers, in our love, in our hospitality, and in our service. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth that it teaches us. We thank You For this word from Peter that speaks down the centuries to us. For we know that at any moment, Christ could return. And we would be called before him to give an account. I don't want any of us to be afraid. I want us to be anxious. Like those servants were when the master came back and they'd been given ten talents or five talents. Be able to say, Oh, Lord, with your help, this is what I've done with what you gave me. And hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
And Father, not all of us, I think, today are ready for that. Not all of us are living with that picture of the imminent return of Christ in our minds. And we are living fast and loose in this world. Oh, we're not doing any great egregious sins, but neither are we earnestly, passionately, sincerely committed to living for Christ and Christ alone. So, Father, in these moments as we respond to what we've heard, there are probably many of us who, if we were completely open and honest, would be flooding down to this altar to pray and to say, Father, forgive me. I want to draw a line today, and I want to live in the light of the imminent return of Christ. I want to live in such a way that each day I can look back on the day and say, as best I knew how with God's help, I lived for him and gave him the glory. Father, there are others of us who are there, and we're sincerely trying with your help. May we pray for each other as Peter admonished us. And may we continue to live our lives in that way. Father, there are some people in this room who have never surrendered their lives to Christ. They are living a life of blatant disobedience. Oh, maybe not on the surface, but beneath the surface. They're trusting in themselves, their own abilities, their own talents. And I pray that you would bring conviction, and bring light so that they will recognize that the only hope they have for eternity is to surrender to the command of Christ to repent. May they do that even as we sing. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. We're going to 